0: Hello, this is Learning with Lowell with your host, Lowell Thompson. We talk about biotech, science, really anything. I try to show you different avenues of success and highlight great people doing great work in these communities. Tune in every Tuesday to the latest podcast episode. We are on iTunes and Stitcher. I have made a quick two-minute guide on how to leave reviews if you'd like to do so. And We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Today, I am joined by Ali and Ignacio, co-founders of Hack Science, who have developed a way to automate cell cultures. Find out more in the show notes. And I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. I know I did. Start out by hearing about the both of you and uh, your backgrounds.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm Ali Afshar. Um, I'm just finishing a PhD at Imperial in uh, solar. In, so basically making materials for next generation, cheap solar panels. Uh, and basically, I've been interested in hardware and software for a while. So before I started my PhD, I um, had a hardware startup for, for just over a year. Um, looking at trying to build a product to kind of replace um, writing on paper because I realized that tablets weren't really replacing that. Um, so it was like a focus on trying to build a build a product that felt like paper, looked more like paper, essentially like an A4E ink device. Um, so I gained a lot of hardware experience while doing that. Um, and then as a result, when I started my PhD, I was just kind of very frustrated by the fact that there was a lot of manual things going on um, in the lab. So you have all these uh, intelligent people um, with great ideas, but unfortunately they spend a lot of their time just doing very um, menial manual processes in the lab, um, which are actually really important in the sense that if you do them slightly wrong, then kind of mess up all your results. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I started to automate some of those um, with the hardware knowledge I had, hardware and software knowledge. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that was that's uh, kind of a bit of background on, uh, yeah, where, how, how we kind of ended up looking at this area. So yeah maybe it's worth uh ignacio saying a bit about himself and then we can kind of link the two together
2: yeah so i um have always kind of been interested in creating businesses and um kind of creating value for people i think it's, it's always been a curiosity of mine uh, from a young age um i had a very different academic journey to ali um i went to university and studied economics and finance um I think the motivation behind that was I was kind of interested in economics, um, but it was more interested in philosophy. But I thought, okay, am I going to be able to get a you know a job with a philosophy degree? Probably not. So went and did that. Um, found it a little bit underwhelming. But during that time, I, I had so much kind of uh, time to play around with the internet and stuff. I actually uh, created my first startup when I was doing my undergraduate, which was selling tickets for events locally, um, because I was one of those guys that was selling tickets physically, and then. I just thought one day it should be better if all of this was online. So I put it online and we started selling tickets on the internet. Um, that won in some money, you know, we threw some parties. And that, uh, for me, that was my first journey into sort of digital entrepreneurship. And, and I don't think I ever looked back since. Um, and then near the end of my degree, I, I kind of got involved in a startup, which was helping, uh, helping students reduce student dropout rates by digitizing feedback. So that was a kind of tighter feedback loop. Um, And that was a really interesting experience. So after graduating, I kind of um, joined as a co-founder, took that through to, uh, you know, a revenue generating um, step and, you know, product development cycle was super interesting for me. I found it fascinating. I think that's when I started getting into product management as an interest. Um, So after that startup, I actually went to Imperial, which is where I met Ali. And I was doing a sort of data analytics master's there. And my motivations were to hopefully get a product management role, in a data analytics company and i wanted to find someone super smart uh, to start a company with uh two months into my masters i had completed both of those goals so i dropped out my masters and started a company with ali but also went and got a product manager job um but i i, I guess i can i can shed a little bit more light onto the story of how we started and why we started a company as well if that's of interest
0: we'll, we'll jump into that i do have a question for the both of you at at this stage before we jump into the, the company aspect how what would you describe is the other person's greatest contribution if you could like distill it down to like a couple of things that they're really great
1: at i can try um so i think i think uh, ignacio is incredibly good at getting in touch with well cold intros to big companies or cold intros to people that could be really useful to us He's incredibly good at setting those up, and um, so that kind of permeates across sales. It permeates across getting investor meetings. It permeates across um, just getting us in places that we probably don't deserve to be at that moment in time. So I would say that that's probably like well, that's one of Ignacio's biggest strengths. Um, and the other one is, I guess, to kind of um, he's very good at breaking down problems analytically into kind of what 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 next steps we should take based on the data. So, yeah, I'd say those two.
0: Great. Uh, what about you, Ignacio? Yeah,
1: so I think, it, I think we complement each other quite well because one of
2: Ali's really key strengths is to transcend a number of different areas, i.e. software, hardware and science and sort of concentrated level how these things fit together and, and, and where there are different opportunities and um, technologies that we can look at. So, you know, he'll, we can say, oh, we need to, you know, we need to look at microscopy and he'll go and research that and then come back with a, you know, a starting point, which is a very different workflow from what I do. So like he can, he has the, the sort of um, intelligence and, and tenacity to go after those, those, those kind of uh, research projects as it were, and then bring them into sort of a pragmatic next step, which is really cool. Um, and I think that's, that's where Ali, you know, really st- stands out uh, and especially at a sort of a, a deep tech startup, you really need to to have um, both know deep technical and scientific knowledge as well as you know the 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 grit and the hustle to go speak to big companies because we are a b2b company so having both of those things i think makes us a really good uh, uh, co-founding team
0: mm-hmm. yeah definitely i love how complimentary you guys are to each other um so let's uh like using that let's jump into how the company came about then
2: yeah so um so prior to me joining uh the university i'd a few hackathons. So, a hackathon is where you know you have a few people who have uh, problems they want to solve, um, and you put them in uh, groups of uh, you know maybe four, um, where they are coupled up with engineers, designers, uh, this kind of thing, and they produce solutions to the challenges. So, I kind of I was kind of in that world when I joined uh, the union. I met Ali at an entrepreneurs event, and Ali, Ali mentioned that you know, one of the things that, that kind of bothered him is, is the fact that engineers and scientists don't really mingle. Um, and also it kind of, uh, one of the other things that he mentioned was, oh, I, I automate things in the lab. I automate some of my own processes. And I like, I kind of, a, a light bulb went off in my head. I said, well, this is a, this is a perfect opportunity for a hackathon. Um, <laughs> people who have challenges, i.e. the scientists who do loads of manual things, and then the people who can build solutions to those challenges, i.e. Uh, the awesome uh, engineers and, and software developers of, of London, Let's do this. Let's make a lab automation hackathon. Um, So within about a few weeks of us suggesting the idea, I think we had uh, posters up all across the university, people signing up, scientists coming us to saying, coming us to us saying, "Hey, you know, I spend three hours a day doing this one process, or you know, I basically haven't seen my kids for for the past month because I have to, uh, you know, uh, uh, work manually on this on this experiment." Um, So from there we you know we we launched the hackathon had five or ten teams basically working on different problems at the end of the hackathon we had nine uh, automated solutions that you know either automated processes that had never been automated before which for us was amazing or interestingly automated um processes for orders of magnitude cheaper than anything on the market and i think that for us was the point where we went oh okay this actually worked um what can we do with this as a business and I think there's a there's kind of an interesting journey from there where we did a lot of Mm. customer development a lot of interviews with um, academics and and biotechs, to understand where their challenges lie and and the data really pointed us to where we are today
1: Uh, and that's kind of
2: uh, how we started
1: so yeah just just to add to that I think uh, um, you know both Ignacio and I are both quite entrepreneurial like we both come from Quite entrepreneurial families, and we we both kind of tried to start businesses before. And I think what happened was after the hackathon, we realised that we were both aware that the impact was big, but we didn't want to scale out events because it just wasn't scalable enough for us. So really, what the the next uh, kind of period after that was about was saying, how can we find the key problem and solve it in the right way that um, we can get this impact happening at scale? Is it a software problem? Is it some kind of like? two-sided marketplace problem you know what does that problem look like so that that's kind of yeah that's where we were and then we uh yeah we just essentially did a lot of customer development we spoke to a lot of people spoke to a lot of big companies including pharmaceuticals and other big companies and um what it came down to in the end was that we could see the best way for us to scale out this impact was to take the number one manual process um which we found ranked by scientists was cell culture which is basically growing cells in the lab. Um, And essentially, you've got to go in every day, um, take the kind of liquid food out from the cells, the the waste, and then replace it with fresh liquid food, essentially, which I call media. Um, And that process takes a lot of time. It's pretty laborious. um, And if you don't do it with a lot of care, you can also mess it up. Um, and, and what we found by talking to a lot of people and surveying a lot of people was that that was the number one problem in terms of the, one, the manual problem that takes up the most time and the most need to have automated. Um, so, yeah, we really doubled down on basically building a product um, for that problem initially.
0: How big of an improvement on when it comes to time, if we were to look at like a, a given 30 days, how much time or, or a week, whatever is like the most easiest number to work with, how much time would a person not automated spend on that task? And how much would automation really help them?
1: So, so to give you a flavor, generally, uh, the data that we gathered, scientists were telling us they're spending um, 50% of their time in the lab. Or across the board, scientists were telling us they're spending 50% of their time in the lab doing things manually. So you know, if we assume that's like 50% of their total time is in, is time in the lab, that's like a quarter of their total time. Um, for cell culture, it's even more. Um, it's hours a day, basically. So it's, uh, it's multiple hours a day, depending on which part of the schedule it is in terms of uh, the growth cycle for the cells. And the thing that's really bad is that, um, you know, cells don't stop eating or living on the weekend. That's the, that's the killer, is that people are also having to come in on the weekend to do the same thing. Um, and some, sometimes uh, people who work with uh, particular kinds of cells sometimes have to come, out, come in the middle of the night to do things as well. And uh, yeah, it's just all that time adds up. So, so basically it's giving all of that time back, which can be, I would say, up to three or four hours a day.
0: That's, that's really significant, especially in, in sure. conjunction with uh, weekend and nights.
1: <laughs> so it really depends on the kind of cell, how much time it saves. Um, but the product we're building, cell feed, essentially um, can deal with a, with a wide range of cells. Uh, and the thing we focused on as well is to say, if we're looking at solving this problem, let's try and solve it in a way that's very similar to how it's being done manually today so that there's um, kind of no barrier to entry for a scientist going from doing it manually to doing it in an automated way. Because uh, one of the other trends we see is that when people want to move to an automated solution in science, often they're having to redo R&D and kind of throw out years of experience around ways of doing things because it's fundamentally set up in a different way. So that's one of the things we also wanted to eliminate was to kind of, we wanted to kind of do it as similarly to how it's being done manually as possible.
0: Brad like the identification of the problem, uh, validating the market by talking to these people. What, what was next, and uh, if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, so we, we kind of,
2: yeah, we identified the problem validated um, the market. We didn't necessarily know what the end solution was going to look like, but we had a prototype in place, and we had, um, you know, we, we, were, we were looking for a bit of funding to get going. So there was a call for um, you know student-led projects to say hey you know if you've got a student-led project um, come and apply and we basically you know prototypes some software and what this platform could look like and, and and this device could look like which which actually was very different to what we have today um, and and it's kind of humbling looking back at <laughs> where we were the, that, like sort of two years ago and, and where we are today um, uh, and you know we won that competition and that enabled us to bring on some great engineers and and kind of get going. Um, And I think from there we kind of pivoted a few times, even at that point, even though we we knew cell culture was what we wanted to build, we were kind of thinking about, you know, maybe could we do um, um, almost like a instructables for science, you know, could academic labs, you know, put together different things and uh, different tools. Um, So we kind of went with that idea for a bit. Um, And then I think, you know, we were mainly focusing on academia at that point. So, we went out and talked to a load of academic labs and said hey you know we we're looking to develop a a solution for cell culture um would you be interested and i think over the course of like a sort of few months we managed to get um three tester labs on board which were based at ucl uh, and imperial college and one of the one of the people that um, one of our first testers was a, a chap called michael delves who works at imperial college and he came to our hackathon um, and you know this this chap spends three hours every day tending his cell cultures and comes in on the weekend. So he, he you know, he's one of our main testers, um, and, and and we really look forward to giving uh, giving Michael his, his weekends back and enabling him to see his kids.
0: From where we are now, how far away are you to the point where he can get his weekends back?
2: Yeah. So um, our first version of cell feed is 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 really around, as Ali mentioned, sort of the media replenishment piece. So we are probably. For Michael specifically, who's a malaria researcher, um, his use case fits our current version pretty well. So if you're looking to just replace the media at a sort of regular interval for large uh, volumes and, um, and, and large number of flasks, we're probably, you know, with a bit more testing about two months away from kind of really solving his problem and just leaving it with him and him being happy to, to kind of crack on. Which is really exciting. So we're currently testing with him and he's he's very encouraged by the results we're getting.
0: What would be the other big milestones that you guys are hoping to achieve?
2: So from a um, so from our perspective, one of the things that changed last year, which is probably worth mentioning, is is um, you know, we went to present at a conference called Synbio Beta, which is, you know, really focused around promoting synthetic bio as an industry and, and the awesome startups that are coming out of it. Um, and you know, we, we hadn't really spoken to many biotech companies before that point. Um, but we went on stage, presented and then, you know, biotech companies started coming up to us saying, hey, we really like what you're doing. Can we can we have a chat? And I think at that point we realized, okay, let's let's start talking to more biotech companies and, and seeing what's up. Um, and I think from there, you know, we we kind of realized there were a few particular segments of the market that really resonated with our solution because of the 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 scale and scale of the, the problem that manual cell culture was causing them. So we realized that cell therapies and, and potentially cellular agriculture, i.e. lab-grown meats, was a really interesting market for us. Um, and uh, so off the back of this kind of uh, new interest, this year our goals are to, to launch um, around five pilots with uh, various organizations from, um, you know, as I mentioned, cell therapy companies, lab-grown meats, different biotech companies, as well as academic labs. And, and to get there, you know, we're, as we mentioned, refining this, this current version, but also uh, putting in place features for, for the next version, which, you know, we have uh, scoped out the features that um, users really want. Um, so, the, so the idea is at the end of this year, we can turn around and be like, oh, these, this is the feedback we've had from the pilots. Now we really know um, what we're going to double down on in 2019 and, and start saving a load of people time uh, uh, from there on.
0: And a big
1: go on, sorry. I was just going to say, and a big, a big uh, focus for us has been as well to think from the, from the start. Um, once we have all these people using the system, w- what ways can we kind of deliver value to each of them based on the number of people in the network? So you know what they call a network effect. Um, so we're really, as well, during that during twenty eighteen, we're really going to start to build out some features um, such as algorithms that we develop based on our visual feedback of what's going on in the cult in the cells uh cell cultures um as well as um, some sharing of basically assays or protocols for how people are running their cells on the machine so that we can start to basically build a community around the machine and and get to a point where come 2019 there's a whole lot of value for anyone who wants to jump on the platform
0: what sorry one second needed some water what what is, what was it like to what are some of the, the struggles you went through to get i'm sorry scratch that my the the question is being asked stupidly when it comes to scale are, do you do you perceive there to be any problems that you guys are working to today to like overcome
1: so there are various scaling problems we're going to come across um one of them is going to be obviously trying to sell to so so when we set out, when we were looking at academia, one of the challenges we saw that would come up during scale would be basically uh, saying we have all these academic labs, but each of them is one account. Um, we're going to have to have a really large sales team to kind of target the whole market and, and go after the whole market. Um, initially, for us, it's, it's you know going after biotechs. One of the challenge, which is you know smaller, uh, less accounts, but larger accounts, so you know you don't need as big a team uh, in terms of the sales team. I think one of the challenges will come once we start to saturate that market, but it won't come for a while. Um, And then we're going to have to really scale out our sales and marketing to target, you know, much more accounts, which have a smaller number of units per account. So that's going to be a, that's going to be a scaling challenge. Um, The other obvious one is um, thinking about manufacturing the product at um, kind of more scale. Uh, So we think that by by Q1 or Q2 2019, we're going to manufacture a, a version um, of which we're going to make about a thousand. So from now till then, we're going to be user, user testing to make sure that we have exactly the right product. Uh, and then come Q2 2019, we're going to have to be mass producing that. So that's going to be a scaling problem from a very different angle, which is thinking about um, designing for manufacture, logistics. Um, so those kind of challenges as well. Um, but again, you know, we're thinking about all of these things from today. So um. Even from today, we we have a we have a roadmap, and we've mapped out the potential pain points when we want to come to mass manufacture, uh, based on the current pro, uh, prototype. So, that's a couple that I can think of.
0: <clears throat> what could you explain the process of manufacturing? I, from the the guests I've had so far, manufacturing uh, a physical product has been like you you'd be one of the first. So I'd love to learn more about it, that process.
1: Yeah, I mean, so essentially, as uh, as far as we know, it's. Uh, you have a a prototype initially, um, which is all about how can we get something quickly to to users where we can user test it, we can get feedback. Um, You haven't necessarily at that point thought about how manufacturable it is. Um, And then from that prototype, from the final prototype that you want to go from there to manufacture, the kinds of things you have to look at are... um, well, for us, it doesn't matter so much component cost because we're building a, a, a B2B product and the, the margins are different and the price is different. Um, but, for example, you have to look at component cost. Um, you have to look at how much support those different components are going to have. Is the, is the manufacturer of that component going to keep making it for the next six months, next year? Um, so there's those kind of challenges. Uh, there are challenges around certifications to do with, you know, is it? Electronically, is this is this not going to interfere with other products in terms of producing radio waves, et cetera? Um, is it safe for someone to operate? Uh, there's those kind of challenges. Then there are challenges around actually making the casing. So is the casing that you've designed, is that uh, cheaply injection moldable or does it require a complicated injection mold? If so, simplify Um So there's these kind of things and there's also obviously assembly and uh, thinking about how to do uh, kind of uh, some kind of QA at at the time of manufacture. So kind of thinking about what kind of software you might have to build to allow people in the factory to to test the final product. Um, And then the other big piece of that, obviously, is to go to China and actually find factories that can do parts of the product that you need done and that they can do it and, and that they're willing to do it at the uh, volume that you want it done, basically, and to the quality that you want it done. So those are the kind of challenges that, that exist. Um, what the, to summarise essentially, the thing that gets manuf- something that get something that is manufacturable, um, affordably, reliably, um, is often very different to what might have been considered like a completely fine one-off prototype. Because you have to think about all of these these uh, facets of manufacturability.
0: To follow up on this question, how did you like gain this knowledge and um, like understanding of the manufacturing process? Did did you read certain books? Did you have mentors that kind of gave you advice? Like, how did you you both kind of gain this type of understanding?
1: Yeah. So, so uh, as a team, I think generally we are used to we're all learners. We're all self people who kind of can quickly teach stuff to ourselves. Um, one of the things that's always Probably the most valuable thing to do when learning a new area is to speak to someone who has expertise in the area. That's the fastest way to level up initially is just to talk to someone who's an expert, ask some ask very specific questions. Don't be afraid to ask what you feel are stupid questions. Um, so that's like a good way of getting the initial knowledge. Um, there's a lot more out. There's a lot of content out there in terms of web uh, web pages you can find Um for example, there's an accelerator called uh, Bolt. They have a very good blog which which mentions some things about uh, manufacture, and also some of the uh, some of the companies that help you prototype, um, such as uh, Form Labs and also Proto Labs. They also do a lot of con, also produce a lot of content about thinking about how to make things manufacturable. Uh, on top of that, we brought into the team. Uh, Early on, we brought into the team uh, an engineer called James, who basically has taken a product from prototype to manufacture before. So we consciously did that very early. Um, he was the second second hire, essentially, to the fourth member of our team. And we very consciously at that point in time hired someone who had taken it, had been through that process before, because it because it's really valuable to have someone here now who can look forward in time and say, if we make this decision now. Is it actually something that we can keep when we go to manufacture, and if not, does that matter? Um, so yeah, I hope that kind of answers the question a a bit more.
0: Mm-hmm. No, it, it definitely answered the question in, in great depth. It's a, uh, it's kind of a, an interesting sandwich that you started out like talking to an expert, you know, did reading, and then eventually found an expert. It's uh, in a in a way you kind of like learned the the right questions to ask so you could find a, a, right. a good member of your team to like be a great resource for you.
1: Right. Right. And I would say also typically in the, sometimes when you're learning something which is very complicated, you can kind of go through that process and you reach a dead end where there's too many things that you need to know to understand the next step, at which point you have to go back and say, read a, read a more like a, a detailed book and just build from the ground up. So you can kind of learn a lot from top down by talking to an expert, filling in some gaps with blogs, et cetera. But then sometimes you reach a dead end where the only way forward is to actually just jump into like a deep book and start from the beginning.
0: What has most surprised you about this process so far? Is it? I can't imagine everything has gone quite as expected, like just as the nature of life. So what were some of the things that surprised you both?
1: Um, I think for me, it really, well, a couple of things surprised me. So before I started this, um, I definitely wasn't as daring as Ignacio in terms of just getting in touch with random people and uh, random companies and trying to speak to them about what we're up to. So I think, what really sur- I think what surprised me, it surprises me less now, but it surprised me a lot at the beginning was the, the fact that we were able, essentially with nothing, we were able to, for example, get in touch with big pharmaceutical companies. Um, you know, They flew us out to see what they were up to before we even really had a team or anything. Um, so that that surprised me. I think, uh, what else surprised me? I, I'm, I'm surprised at the moment that the companies, we there the are big companies that we speak to that have a lot of the... Um, same pain points as uh, people lower down the chain like in academia for example in terms of lack of automation so that surprises me a bit Um, but it makes sense if you think about the fact that these companies the research that they base all their work on comes out of academia Um, so that's like a more specific surprise as well I guess.
2: Mm, I think a few things surprise me especially as a you know initially well still an outsider to science in the sense that I'm not a scientist but, but I know, I'm kind of familiar with the field now and kind of integrated. But initially, I kind of, you know, assumed science was a very, um, you know, reproducible, rigorous field where um, everything was, uh, you know, really um, robust and that kind of thing. But I think what really shocked me was, you know, stats like eighty percent or seventy-five percent of um, research papers can't be or, or research can't be reproduced by others, and fifty percent. Uh, um, research can't be reproduced by the original creator, so I think, you know, as outsiders, you kind of see science as this uh, really, um, uh, you know, the, you know, the things like the scientific method give you these images of things being really robust, but actually, science is, a, is still in a, a bit of a, a tricky place when it comes to things like reproducibility, and, and and some of that really relates to how much of it is manual, um, and I and and also the kind of inefficiencies that kind of operate at some of these, you know game-changing companies you know cell therapy companies are basically hoping to um make sure no one uh, dies of cancer anymore um so to kind of get an insight into the level of manual work as Ali as Ali mentioned and the, the kind of consequences of that were really surprising to me and I think um another thing that surprised me was how you know I've, I've kind of interacted with a lot of businesses through my various work, um, you know, selling software or producing software and this kind of thing. Um, But no customer or segment, customer segment has been as innovative and and open to new ideas as sort of biotech and and science companies. You know, we speak to these um, organizations and they often tell us what ideas our product should have. And and we turn around and think, wow, that's a great idea. Um, And, you know, they're really open to just like crazy or or very novel um, features, uh, which I'm not sure, you know, um, traditional businesses would uh, necessarily um, suggest. Uh, So I think that's been, that's why it's so exciting to work in this field because scientists, you know, come up with new ideas all the time and they're open to new ideas and and happy to to kind of jump on innovation. So I think um, those two things probably surprised me the most.
0: <clears throat> That's extremely fascinating, the idea that the... Like, I have the exact same thought when I first started, like, getting into the biotech, like, just doing my research. And the the aspect where the replicability, is, it's kind of concerning in a way. Like, you, you want uh, things to be able to reproduce. Do you, <clears throat> do you see what you guys are working on being able to really impact that in a significant way? So, like, uh, instead of having a 50%... A person being able to unable to uh, re- 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 reproduce their thing, or you know, seventy percent depend what what's going on. Do you see like a, a big, you know, increase in the ability to reproduce things using this type of technology?
1: Yeah, I think absolutely. I think uh, that that alone is one of the reasons that I think more automation in science is is the future. Um, one of the things actually that we focused on from the beginning, as a result of seeing this problem. Um, which, which partly, by the way, comes from the fact that when people do things manually, manually, it's very hard for them to write it up in a way that someone else can copy it exactly the same manually just by reading it. You know, for example, if I did some complicated process, I can't, I probably would, would never write down, oh yeah. And I held the pipette at 45 degrees and I filled it up. At, it took me th- three seconds to fill it up, for example. Um, like that, that level of granularity. No one ever writes at that level of granularity, but sometimes it can make a really big difference. Um, so from the beginning, one of the things we thought about was uh, how can we build in an ability for people to reproduce work that they're doing on automated systems on other, other automated systems. Uh, so one of the features we've built is, is basically this uh, software where you can use drag and drop blocks to program the automated system, and then you can share that um, protocol or or float with another scientist um, and they can import it and run it on their system as well. So we really, we think that's a key part of automation and that's something that we really want to push as well.
0: I definitely see the value of that when it's more, more than just you know having this great technology, but it's easy to use and easy to communicate to other people. Like it's kind of like hitting like the, the like a, like a trifecta of, of right. value right there.
2: Yeah. I think there's also like a second order effect, which kind of will happen as more automation comes in is the more, you know, the higher, fruit, the, higher the throughput of the experiments you can do and that kind of thing. You know, if you can reduce the human cost of an experiment, um, increasing the amount of data you can have, you're redu- reducing the biases created around um, when you spend, you know, let's say, two years trying to do a piece of work and you end up sort of fudging results or not publishing bad data. You know, when an experiment becomes, you know, something that is really cheap to run and quick to run, um, you then give rise to an abundance of new data um, and potentially change of incentives in the way that science works. Mm -hmm. So I think that that could be another effect where, uh, you know, there's a mentality, Mm -hmm. a sort of perception change in the way people look at
1: experiments. Definitely, and I think a big part of that cost is like it's it, it will become emotionally cheaper to run an experiment as well if you can just if you can just press a few buttons rather than commit like twelve hours of a day and then and then have a failure for example.
0: Definitely, I, I want to take a step back. I, I thought of a question um, in between Ali's two things that kind of like surprised him, in that like uh, these, this uh, concept of like cold emailing or like uh, cold trying to get a hold of people. For people who are, who are looking to, you know, do just that, like, what advice would, or tips would you give them after going through the experiences yourselves?
2: So, in terms of just reaching out to people, what what kind of tips? Yeah, yeah I think um, I think understanding who to reach out to is an experiment in itself. You know, um, I think uh, with any new business, it's not just about defining the product you're building, but it's defining who you're building it for and. And what problem are you solving for them? Um, so, in terms of reaching out in the initial phases, it, you, you're going to get a lot of no's. You're going to get a, you're going to get people saying this isn't for me or this isn't. I'm not the right kind of company. But you know, after a short amount of time, you get to you kind of get a sense of who the right people are, and, and um, it's amazing. You know, when you send an email to someone or you kind of get an intro to someone, and they go, "Wow, this is this is really what we've been." looking looking for and this could solve a lot of problems for us and then uh and then you know i'd say just don't uh, even a no even though it hurts sometimes it's just as useful because you know that you're not going to spend your efforts looking at that segment of the market so i'd say just go for it you know as as, you don't the worst thing that you could do is is develop a product for you know two years and then not really know who you're building it for and what the problem is you're solving and and have to go back to the drawing board so even though uh it feels like you might be talking to people a bit too early um it can save you a lot of time in the long run
0: is that consistent with you as well ali uh
1: in terms of reaching out to people yeah i think uh obviously volume is important um i think you'd be surprised i think people sh- i think people just need to try it more so i think it's surprising. People, a lot of people would be surprised if they reached out to people on LinkedIn or reached out to people whose email they found um, that they actually got a reply. Um, for me, I always think about if I just think about the details like, you know, short, punchy subject line and basically short email um, and then just try and get that email with that initial email, just try and get to, get it to a point where you have either a chat on the phone or a meeting or something. Um, so that's kind of like in more specific detail what I think about. Is there
0: for someone who is just starting it? The to summarize, it basically comes down to you know give it a give it a, a number of tries for everyone who's listening who's kind of like think about reaching out to people like don't don't give up at like five nos or or ten nos or like ten not responses because like more often than not like like for me and I, I. I be wondering if this is the same for you guys like sometimes you have to message people back a couple of times just to like get through like the you know the hundred of people the hundreds of people that message them that day but right but like you can get through it if you just are persistent enough And i think if you uh for people who are listening if you kind of make a, a game like open up a, an excel spreadsheet and kind of like keep track of who you reached out to and then over the course of a week just kind of like tally it up and see like how how good you did like who who responded you know what you learn from it like try to make it like try and do like the scientific method almost like uh, a system of like I- improvement and uh yeah. like you'll be able to like push through it eventually i think i think like ignazio said like you just need to gain that experience and then once you have that experience you can be specific like ali said and you know know what to look for so that you can break through that mm-hmm. yeah i, like that so I, I think, think, I think yeah, as well are also
2: once you kind of know which area to go to or even take a punt if there's a conference that kind of looks related just give it a go go see if you can present um go attend um and you'll be surprised you'll find people that come to you that you never even thought would be interested in what you're doing or you never even considered that was a business that even existed um so i think uh, there are other you know there's that highly scalable approach but then there's the also sort of go in person get a for where the market's at. You know, Ali went to a session yesterday around cell therapy and came back with a ton of knowledge and some new, new connections. And um, while there is a bit of a risk that you go to a conference and it might not be the right one, I think we've had good experiences at all the
0: conferences we've gone to so far. And Ali, I think you were going to say something.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, even out, outside of pure cold emails, um, just asking people you know is there anyone else you think we should talk to or is there anyone else that would be interesting for yeah to get in touch with um and then getting that next getting that next conversation that's a big part of it as well because you know if you have that with every conversation you had you'd always have a full pipeline of interesting people to talk to um so i think that's that's also you know an interesting and, and big part of it
0: yeah i think uh- Especially if you have, like, a referral. Like, if you if you talk to one person and they're like, oh, I can't, I'm not really the right person, but, oh, you know, Jim over here in the county would probably be able to help you out. Like, just having, like, that point of contact that referred you usually, you know, gets you up, like, an extremely good um, response rate. So everyone who's listening, or, you know, like, even if you get a no, like, you know, maybe a follow-up question of, do you know anyone who could help me, will get you something really significant. Is there any aspect about... What you're working on that we haven't covered thus far that we we should cover like i, I want to make sure that everyone has a really great idea of what you guys are working on like the passion behind it and i um like we're i've asked a number of pretty good questions but i just want to really make sure if there was something that you wanted to, to speak about that we were able to talk about it and in, in, in reference to that
1: true yeah i mean perhaps i can just i don't know how many biologists are listening to, maybe i can just dive in on some of the details of how the product works in case it's interesting for anyone listening. And, you know, we love, love, love it when scientists or anyone gets in touch with us. Um, so yeah, essentially the system we have built to automate the cell growing or cell culturing process, um, is called CellFeed. feed. And what's really nice about it is that it works with the existing flasks that a lot of scientists are using in the lab called T-flask. Um, and essentially you set up your T-flask with our system, uh, you plug in your media. Uh, and then you can remotely control that idea from your phone or from any browser, essentially. Uh, and the, the next version also has a microscope built in so that you can do the mic- microscope analysis at the same time. And so what that does is it, it basically takes care of um, most of the workflow of growing cells and just really frees up time for people to, to think of new experiments or to analyze the data they have and try and understand what's going on. Um, so we think it's going to be quite... This is, this is quite a big deal for a lot of uh, a lot of scientists
0: when you when you kind of describe that to scientists do they tend to ask um like if there was like a fact you know page do they tend to have like frequently asked questions that you kind of like preempt an answer right now
1: um there are a few there are a few frequently asked uh questions i guess um some of, them, some of them we are still adding features that, that uh, deal with them, and some of them we, ha- we have features that we're adding to deal with them further, like later on in the pipeline. Um, so one of the questions we get sometimes is, um, uh, where does this go? So yeah, initially the system actually just goes into the incubator, which is where you normally put yourself. Um, another question we get is, where is the media stored? Because normally media is stored in the fridge. Um, so with our system, it can basically there's like a small fridge where you store the media and it pulls it in from the fridge. Um, and let me try and think of another common question. Oh yes. We get a question about um, passaging or subculturing. So does it handle that um, at the moment? No, um, but we have a, we, we built in the ability to in a sterile way, disconnect and reconnect the flask so that you can go away, do that and then bring the flask back. Um, but we are going to add that um, at some point probably end, either end of this year or beginning of next year will be in the product. So that's uh, some like frequently asked questions we get.
0: If uh, biologists would like to like, reach out and potentially be like one of your pilots or something like that, is there a good way for them to contact you?
1: Yeah, so they can uh, either contact us um, through the site or um, they can use one of our emails. For example, my email is uh, ali, which is A-L-I, at hackscience, so H-A-C-K, science. Uh, dot io Uh, and yeah we love hearing from people and love chatting to people so get in touch um there are no there are no stupid suggestions or questions or ideas we just love talking to scientists so yeah and also actually another thing that's worth mentioning at this point is um, uh, we're looking to expand our team at the moment so we're looking for a number of roles um, and, yeah, if you're interested, essentially, if you're interested in working in a cross-discipline team that are trying to solve a big problem in science and really accelerate the, 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 uh, the speed of biotech and um, everything that comes along with that, such as development of medicines and cell therapies, then reach out.
0: Uh, uh, one point to note for everyone who's listening, for every, like, you know, like the email he just mentioned, the website, the, they also have a Twitter. Um, all that will be put in the show notes. So if you you know maybe if you didn't hear the email, you can go down there. You'll be able to see all of that content that we've we've talked about through the course of this podcast. So like just enjoy enjoy the show, but it it, it's there as well if you didn't have a pen or pencil ready. The second question I have is: Are there uh, specific roles that you guys are looking for? Are specific type of people?
1: Yeah, so I mean, one thing that we try and look for is um, in any role we look for depth in a particular area, and then. A general ability to, to, to be a good generalist basically and to learn new things because uh, the reality is as a startup you're always having to deal with new challenges and all of our roles sit across a wide area um, so specifically right now we're looking for um, a good cross-discipline biologist um, who has experience and, and basically loves and knows everything about cells um, but also shows a strong ability to to teach themselves new things and, and play in different areas. Uh, and and uh, similarly, we're looking for an electronic engineer um, with the same quality, the ability to kind of sit across wide areas of electronics. So not just firmware or PCBs or circuit design, but a bit of all of them um, and a strong ability to, to learn new things.
0: And this is for the London area, correct?
1: That's right, yeah. We're looking for in the London area.
0: Have, when it comes to hiring people, because you mentioned you hired uh, James, the engineer who's done manufacturing before, have you learned um, like a good process for hiring people to sift through to make sure you get the right person?
1: I think we're still um, we're still getting better at that. Um, I think that's a hard. It was a it's a hard thing to learn, and, and I think one, generally one of the things we do uh, a lot as a company is we are very introspective. Um, for example every two weeks we have a retrospective where all of us look at what things went wrong what things we can do better and we criticize ourselves and you know we're doing that at the moment with the hiring process Um, I think a really key part of it is making sure that you have a lot of people coming through the funnel so from the top of the funnel you have a lot of people who are applying Um, we realize some things around if the job spec is too difficult people discount themselves even though they might be people that we think are perfectly qualified for the job so that was something we learned Um, i think we're also uh i think we're learning a lot about how to screen people effectively um and that's something we're still learning but essentially how can we pick out the qualities that we think we're looking for based on a cv or based on an interview so how do we screen for those Um, and as we go along with developing a variety of questions, which um, we think pick out the different strengths and weaknesses of the candidate. Mm
0: -hmm. Is uh, uh, there anything to contribute on that subject? Ignacio?
2: Yeah, I think something else, I don't know if it was mentioned, um, but referrals we found to be really powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you ask, you know, the best engineer, you know, Hey, are you looking for a job? No. Oh, well, if you, who's the best engineer you knew that might be looking for a job? Um, that tends to be one of the kind of greatest ways of finding exceptional people um, because exceptional people hang out with exceptional people and they will also, you know, if they're the first person that comes to that person's mind, then, you know, they're definitely worth talking to. And I think, um, you know, if you go down the sort of recruiter angle, the, there are different incentives and, you know, this kind of stuff can, can, can maybe lead to a lot more noise than, uh, uh, than necessary. So I think I'd recommend, uh, going for referrals and obviously building your network, just continuously building your network really helps as well. Um, as with anything, if you build relationships with investors, customers, and, and potential hires, the longer, you know, them, the, the more kind of natural it is to enter into a, you know, discussion about joining our mission, be it as an investor or as a you know, pilot partner or a, or, or, or an
1: employee, and and yeah, I think I totally agree. Referrals have, have always been the best um, options for hires. They tend to be the strongest. Um, I think one regret I have this time round hiring, and I, I think we'll change this for the future, is to um, essentially you always have to be think always have to be talking to people who could be filling roles that you can see coming up in the next six months, um, so that when the time comes round, you've already built that relationship and you've already started to understand. Um, what that person is like. So I think one thing um, we'll try to change moving forward is to is to always be looking at uh, potential candidates in a in a variety of different areas, so that when when the time comes we have like a good set of people that um, they know us, we know them, and and we can hire more quickly.
0: When um, when uh, when people apply for things, the, they they generally get like this if you talk to an HR person they tend to somewhat talk about how like uh, there's like misspelling or like uh, some type of things like that like there's like uh, key things that will like completely like sift people out have you found that there's any like common denominators that people can be like oh this is this this person like you know won't be good because of these types of experiences or like this doesn't sound phony or have have you found anything like that that helps like like qualify people through in an effective way or are you still kind of developing that type of like knowledge base?
1: Um, I think we're still developing that kind of uh, knowledge base, but definitely something, for example, that is a is a really good indicator um, is when we can see either on LinkedIn or the CV that people have self taught themselves a lot of things outside of their main area. That's always a really that's always a really good sign. Um, I think for me, something that's always a bit concerning is if there are candidates who seem to have either have done lots of uh, things for a short time. I mean, that needs justification. Um, But then also I find it, it's always a bit weird for me if there's someone who's, who has like multiple things that are ongoing at the same time. So if they have like three or four things that are still happening, it says like, you know, whatever date to present, um, running this society, doing this other thing, doing this other thing. I think that for me is sometimes a bit, um, alarming uh, but apart from that yeah the main positive indicator that I like to see is uh, that people have been teaching themselves stuff outside of their, their main area
2: yeah I think I think that's generally one of the main things I think I think something that can be a red herring is, is um, you know which school people went to I think it's a good indicator in terms of like they did you know they did well in exams to get into a school but you know um i think you know being self-taught and being diverse in your experiences trumps um you know doing well in exams
1: definitely definitely
0: yeah i would have to echo that from the other people i've interviewed thus far and the people who have just been corresponding with me like the idea that like you're going to be successful at school like that doesn't necessarily translate over like the like it's a, a entirely different environment from uh school to real life, so it's uh like a 4.0 person might not actually be like the best, so you have to look at like other um like things like experiences and stuff and, and attitude, like willing to learn, 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 learn. Um, mm. one thing I have found, like just as like uh some feedback for you guys, or like an idea, or maybe something that you guys currently do, is I found that um. Some people have found a lot of success in like setting, like having the entire team meet with uh, an interviewer and like ask them questions individually so that like you can get like, instead of having just the hiring person interview someone, you have like, you know, the entire team like take like five, ten minutes and just kind of like talk to the person. And then you're able to sit down and then the entire team feels invested when you, you go forward and you, the entire team can kind of give you an impression. And so like it makes it much like much more likely to find like a really good candidate since you have a couple more people being able to add some input. I don't know if you, if you guys have tried that or something you can experiment with.
2: Yeah, it's not something we've done here just yet because we're still kind of in the early stages of this hiring process. But um, I used to be a PM at a fintech company, and basically at that company there was like 50 software engineers, right? Uh, and within those, within that set, there was you know subsets of teams, and the project was you know if we're hiring a data engineer that's going to be on the growth team um basically the growth team interviews them because at the end of the day it's not it's not the internal recruiter that's going to spend uh you know 10 hours a day with them working with them it's it's the growth team so um I definitely have seen that work so i think we're, we, we might give that start giving that a go especially with something like the electronics engineer where um you know the, the hardware team um are going to be you know spending a lot of time with them. I think that's that's a good suggestion. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, all right, last question, and then uh, I can I'll open up to you guys if you have any uh, uh, questions or topics you'd like to talk about real quick before we end. Um, so we talked about kind of your goals for the company. Do you have any personal goals for twenty eighteen? You know, like ended on like a personal note that you're currently working on that uh, would be kind of like fun to hear about.
1: Yeah, I mean. Uh, I mean, the, the main, so the main one for me is uh, uh, hopefully in the next few months I'll have my PhD completely finished. So that's a big personal goal, and that will give me a lot more time to double down on uh, on other, other parts of uh, what we're doing. I think uh, outside of that, um, from the hardware and software side, I think from my point of view, I would like to kind of get better at keeping them in sync and trying to minimize the amount of, trying to really optimize our product development process so that we minimize um, the amount of t- time where we have to kind of redesign something or throw away some work that we did. Um, and also within that work out how we can build a, like, a, like a good uh, framework within which we can deliver things really predictably in terms of time. So I think that's like a that's like something I'm I'm learning a lot about and thinking a lot about. Um, yeah, I think that's that's uh, some personal things.
0: Have you have you looked at Agile or the Scrum like uh, task management systems? Like those are pretty interesting.
1: Mm. So we do that um, at the moment, and uh, yeah, we work on kind of two two weekly sprints. Um, so we so we do a lot of that process at the moment, and we. Use Jira to keep a track of a lot of our um, where we're at, etc. I think the the nuances are that uh, for software it's very easy. For hardware, when you have an you have multiple things in that in that uh, in that process, uh, it becomes a lot a lot more difficult. So I think what we're working out is how do we, for example, how do we decouple user testing and engineering so that we can test things quicker? Um, how do we set up the the development so that it goes through different members of the team at different in the right order so that um, the handoffs are super smooth and we basically have like a predictable route to to when parts of the product are gonna be finished and I think one of the interesting uh, well, one of the things that's a bit more difficult with hardware as well is that they um, it sits a lot. It sits across the development tends to sit across a lot more sprints than uh, with software. It's a lot more difficult to do like continuous deployment, for example. Um, but we do think about ways in which we can get close. So you know, we, we're a big fan of like rapid prototyping, ordering things to get done in resin or three D printing. Um, so we do think a lot about how we can kind of cut some of those corners in terms of in terms of time. Uh-
0: ignacio some personal goals you have for this year
2: yeah personal goals um i think there's probably two ones that are, that are really ex- exclusive to, to personal goals um one i think is i've really got into bouldering recently um so bouldering is you know kind of climbing on uh, not high walls um it's a really interesting sport because um you know it's not a team sport but you go along with your friends and it's quite social, but it's one of those sports where you really have to use a combination of, um, bravery, but also problem solving. And I really like problem solving to the extent that I come home from the climbing wall and I'll be lying in bed and I can see some of the problems I've been trying to solve. Um, and it's, and you know, I I think it's a great um, sport for anyone who's living in the city because, you know, you don't have to, there are tons of climbing walls out there and, and, uh, it's a great way to meet new people as well, which um, is kind of can be hard in a city like London. So I think one of my goals is to get really good at, at bouldering. Um, my second goal of this year is to um, develop a better understanding and wider knowledge of kind of psychology, I think. Um, so over the past year, I think I've I don't know. I don't really know where this fascination is stemmed from, but I've been kind of fascinated with understanding why people do the things they do um and understanding things like cognitive biases um and how they develop and how you can be more aware of your own cognitive biases and overcome them because i think the the first stage is to recognize hey i did that because maybe i or i've said this thing or i believe this thing because of um this personal bias and intrinsically i'm programmed to think that but actually maybe the real world objective state is is something else and I think, as an individual goal, not just for this year, but for the rest of my life, I'd, I'd like to be able to um, to be more aware of biases and how they affect interactions with other people, and how I can, uh, you know, I, I guess just be a better person on that front. Not that I'm not that I think I'm, I'm flawed as a person um, intrinsically, but I think there are there are things that we can we can always do to improve.
1: Hmm. I think Ignacio is going to remind me of another one, which is uh, um I'm trying to learn a lot of biology right now, a lot of cell biology. So I'm really reading a lot in that space. And that's something that I really want to get a strong grasp on um, before the end of the year. Because I just feel like it's it's an incredibly exciting area at the moment. And there's a lot of places in in there that um, if we understand that we can provide a lot of value um, because of the unique set of skills that we bring together as a team.
0: For for um, in response to Ignacio, I, I actually got my bachelor's degree in neuroscience, so I have a couple of book recommendations for you. Uh, oh, fantastic! Yeah, <laughs> have, have you checked out *Influence* by Bob Cialdini? Influence, yes. So
2: I've read *Influence*. Um, I've recently finished a book called Minds, Mindsight, uh which I would thoroughly recommend, and I'm currently reading a book called *Nudge*, um, uh, which is all about kind of takes a a kind of cursory look at sort of the the biases and that kind of thing and obviously um things like thinking fast and thinking slow are uh, are kind of some of the other ones in this area what what other ones have you read recently or or would you recommend
0: well the second one was going to be think fast and slow so you beat me to that one um (laughs) anything by malcolm gladwell is really fascinating Mm. and if if, uh robert green have you checked out anything by him like uh mastery 48 laws of power the uh like that type of books?
2: I came across 48 Laws of Power. I wasn't um, too convinced um, at the time, but I, maybe I could take a look again. But I'll check out the other book you mentioned. What, what was good about that one? The,
0: the, the Mastery one? Oh, I, I liked it because it, it talked about, you know, how to be great at something, how to get to the point where you are a master of it. Um, I, I read his 48 Laws of Power, and there's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm probably in the same boat and, and uh, thought process on it. But it's his mastery book, like it it goes through how other people have gone through the apprenticeship, like how to learn, how to gain knowledges, how to like how to find people who can be mentors, how to like get how to think about different dynamics. Like it's a really good book for like uh just trying to figure out like A, what would be something that would be fascinating. In. so like even if you don't know what you'd want to master in, like it kinda helps with that. And then it can get into like actually the practices to do it, and it gives like, what, I, what I like about his books is that he gets a lot of like, historical context, which is really fascinating to me. Like you had to learn a little bit more about history and other, and other things at the same time. But yeah, that's kind of like it in a nutshell for, for that one. And, um, um, I do not I don't know if I mentioned this, but Malcolm Gladwell, have you checked out anything by him? Yeah. I've, I've come across a few of his books. I mean, what, what are your favorites? Oh, one of my favorites, uh, for human psychology or, or by Malcolm Gladwell's stuff specifically. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Blink is really interesting. I think blink is really fascinating. The idea that we like whenever we look at a scenario, there's like the like a subconscious response to it that we either listen to or don't listen to. And that's that's basically biases. Like do you are you listening? Are you when you listen to your instincts, are you doing it in a way that benefits you or are you are you using them to harm yourself? And I think like I think the part of our brains that make Reasonable choices, like make reason, like the frontal cortex and stuff. Those, like, of course, like that's kind of where we are at. But I think the subconscious stuff, like, I think it's a tool, you know, like, like anything. Like when when you're walking down the street and someone gives you like a vibe that they might attack you, that doesn't mean they're necessarily gonna attack you, but your brain's saying, watch out. And so, like, yeah. a lot of a lot of animals, like, they just live on nothing but instinct. So you have to you have to imagine that to some extent when you can be in tuned with it and then have the higher order, you know, reasoning functions to kind of like tease it out. Like, you know, what about it? Like, what about this person made me feel that I should trust them. And then you, you learn a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about like how to, you know, read body language and stuff. Yeah,
2: exactly. And I think even you can extend that to a team setting. If you try to try to understand why, what is the kind of, what is the goal we're all trying to achieve here? And, And then, and then maybe why, what are some of the motivations for, people's positions and this kind of thing. And how can you, if you can empathize with that position, um, mm. that can help you bring uh, and you understand where you need to be. That can help you kind of really align and, and understand things a bit better. So I think, I think, yeah, the, my main motivation behind it is to, to really help me understand, um, how to really achieve this sort of global optimum, um, of any situation. Um, uh so I have, I have a lot i just generally think about this stuff a lot um <laughs> and i think it's interesting to kind of broaden my knowledge in that area because uh, i think it could be super helpful for everyone i think if if more people especially i think you look at things like politics and sort of the, the conflicts that happen in on the sort of global scale i think there if there was a bit more awareness and a bit more empathy um on these fronts there may be fewer conflict conflicts but also um you also realize things like community Communication is actually uh just a misalignment of people's understanding of people's positions um and so i think uh i don't know maybe there's something in the future where I, I kind of develop these ideas into a uh um a more of a project but who knows
0: the last book recommendation for you based on what you just got done saying um the there's walter isaacson wrote a great yeah. book on uh on Ben Franklin, and Ben Franklin was like the, he's like the the like the poster child. Like this book really captures it of going from a state of like kind of being an idiot when it comes to interacting with people. Like he definitely like Ben Franklin as a kid was not very not very uh, in, intuitive, shall we say? Like he just kept getting screwed up. Like, like he got stuck in England a number of times. You know, one time because he wasn't paying attention to the details. And uh, by the end of his life, you know, he's the reason that the the French like Ben Franklin more than anyone was really the reason why the French came in and kick you know helped kick out the english. So it's like like the the evolution from a guy who doesn't know a lot to a guy who kind of like sublimated himself into the french society to like win them over. Like it's a really interesting story and I think Walter Isaacson really captures it. And I've read I've read probably like six books on on, on uh, Ben Franklin. So like his is usually yeah, that's the one I'd recommend. Nice.
2: I'll check that out. That sounds really interesting.
0: Yeah, uh any book recommendations for people listening from from the both of you? Like that's uh, that's kind of would be a great thing to have answered
1: so i'm reading a i'm reading a really good book about um like a good really good overview of like the history of uh genetics at the moment it's called gene yeah It's a very good book i can't remember the name of the author um let me just check i think it's uh siddhartha Mukherjee. Um, but that's fantastic. I mean, like the best way of learning about a new area, one of the best ways is actually to like, look at the history to understand kind of where, why it is, where it is at the moment. Um, so that's a good book from that side. Um, I know Ignatia and I both love, um, Sprint, which is, uh, which is about how to kind of use a test ideas in five days. Um, and it's written by Jake Knapp uh obviously the, the, the lean startup as well um by eric Ries is a great one um outside of those kinds of books um yeah i mean that most of my reading at the moment has been non-fiction in those kind of areas to be honest
2: yeah i think um i think i would probably echo uh something like this this book um i think if you're talking about you know uh, people who are thinking about starting a company um some good books to read would be uh you know, obviously start with the lean startup because that gives you a framework to get going. Um, and as we mentioned, talk to users and this kind of thing, make sure you're building the right, the right product. Then it's, you know, okay, I've got something, a project, maybe got a bit of funding, then you hire someone, uh, or hire a team and then it's like, wow, okay, now we have to manage this team. So for, for that kind of, um, uh, area, I think one of the guiding books for a lot of entrepreneurs has been, um, uh, high, high Output Management by Andy Grove, who was obviously the uh, CEO of Intel. And, um, you know, he helped bring that company to, to, to where it is uh, today and, it, and, it, and took it through the hard times, kind of really pivoted it into the business that it focuses on now. And I think what he does is really, I mean, everyone's incredibly grateful that he took the time to, to reflect on his experience and formalize some of his learnings. Um, so I think that's a good book to read um in general um i think some the the another book that ali and i both read is the hard thing about hard things which is Mm. uh quite again there's some some pragmatic advice in there some of it is a less um uh kind of validated as as andy's frameworks and and and, and that kind of thing but uh you know the anecdotes in there are are interesting and, and definitely give you insight to some of the things that you don't necessarily think about at the beginning um yeah, I think those two books are definitely good ones to get started with um, if you think you might make building a company.
1: And I think to, to, to I'm just trying to tie if anything outside of business. I was just going to say to tie back kind of the hard thing about hard things to what Ignacio was saying a bit more about psychology, et cetera, um, is I think what's really interesting in that book is that it makes you think about how are the decisions or the behaviors that um, we do as people who are kind of leading a, a company how does that affect um, future decisions and future behaviors of, of people in your team? So I think that's, that's something that, for example, in that book is very interesting is, is saying, okay, if somebody comes to you, for example, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, Oh, Hey, I need a, a raise and you give them the raise, then expect all of your employees to come to you immediately after and say all the time and just ask for raises. Cause that's the, that's what you've built is you've built an expectation that like, if you want to raise you need to ask us for a raise for example so it's just like it, it just makes you think twice about every kind of uh, behavioral decision you make as a as someone who's kind of leading a team and how that affects the behaviors you have it have expressed in the team if that makes sense so that's very interesting
0: yeah no uh, that's uh that's one I'm definitely going to pick up it's probably the of, of all the recommendations I'm probably going to start with that one because it sounds really fascinating
2: yeah
0: uh well, I, I appreciate the recommendations. I just want to sum up before the the end. Um, we got to today. We got to learn about Ali Ignazio. Uh, the we have the website in the you uh, in the show notes, the Twitter, uh, and we got um, Ali's email if people want to like bug him on that. And they're they're currently looking for. They're currently hiring. So I mean, they're, they're pretty nice people. I mean, you got to listen to them for the last hour, so you have a pretty good idea. Um, so you know, biologists, they want to, you know, have a conversation, people looking for, you know, potentially a job or just any feedback whatsoever, you know, like, you know, let's all kind of like work together to like, you know, raise the tide a bit. Um, Is there anything else that we, that I, in that kind of like summary that I I should mention? Are we good on the summary?
1: I think that's good. Yeah. I mean, anyone, also anyone who's interested in using the product, get in touch, get in touch obviously as well.
0: Thank you for listening today. Please subscribe, leave a review, check out our website, learningwithlowell.com or join my mailing list. I'm here to learn and share what I learn. New episodes every Tuesday, new emails every Monday, and I blog on topics that I find fascinating.